good to be here with you again. We love coming up here to worship and to sing with you. You guys love to sing. It's always a pleasure to worship with the singing people. If, uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Jim Whittle. I'm the uh, India Director for Equipping Leaders International and a teaching elder in this presbytery. For 11 years, uh, I pastored the church in Douglasville, which is now merged with the church in Villa Rica as the world is ever a shifting tide. And uh, so we bring you greetings. We're glad to be here with you and hope you'll stay for the fellowship dinner where we'll talk for a few minutes about all that the Lord is doing through ELI in India. So open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. I don't know what your tradition is, but I like for people to stand while we read the word. So stand up, if you would. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 4. Hear the word of God. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Thus ends a reading of God's word. May the grass wither and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stand forever. Amen? Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So the question of the morning is, are you happy? And, and uh, what makes you happy? Did you ever think or contemplate that question, think about your happiness? Some people are more self-reflective than others. And so you may think about whether you're happy or not. Uh, here's another twist to the question. What would make you happy? And, and uh, right off the bat, my, my answer to that question is, is to have enough money not to worry about the bills, to be able to eat out whenever we want without concern for the cost. Sherry and I raised five kids on a preacher's salary, and we didn't eat out much. So to me, heaven always seemed like just being able to go out and feed everybody. Or, or, maybe, um, or maybe you want to win the lottery. And uh, everyone who plays the lottery, I'm sure, is convinced that winning will make them happy. Uh, otherwise, why would you play? Uh, or, or some of you might say, I'd be happier if I were thinner. You know, the first year of COVID, I did really good. I've gained the COVID-19 the second year. Uh, probably most of us would be happier if we were thinner. Some of you might say the good friends would make you happy. Or for some people, getting married, finding a spouse would make you happy. Or maybe the, the feeling of, of having purpose or a, a job that you love would make you happy or being well-liked or well-known or successful or maybe it's good health would make you happy or, or, or maybe it's having prosperous and happy children or for some of you, prosperous and happy grandchildren and maybe others of you, prosperous and happy great-grandchildren or, or, a, or a united family at, at holidays. For some of you, that's just a dream. There's a few steps in my family, so I don't think we'll ever be together I, this side of heaven for, for a picture. And sometimes I look at the family picture and I think, well, that one's missing or that one's missing. So you see, the list is really pretty long when we think about what would make us happy. And every one of the things that I listed 
about happiness, if you notice, it's about life being easier without struggle. Did you notice that? But that kind of happiness is fleeting. It's not, it's not bad to be happy about these things. I'd be happy if the Falcons won the Super Bowl. But, but it would only last to the next season, right? And, and so happiness comes and goes. What lasts is joy. Because joy doesn't come from our circumstances. Joy comes from the Lord. Joy is the spirit-filled response of faith to the faithfulness of God who loves his children no matter what. Joy comes from the assurance that God works for our good even in our struggles and pain. So we're going to look at joy this morning. That's what this passage is about. I have three points, three things that I want to share with you about the gospel. And the first is joyful unity. Now Paul tells the Philippians here in verse 2 that it would make his joy complete if they were unified. Now I don't know if you noticed that or not as we read it, but this means that Paul already has joy, but also that his joy could be greater still. And we know Paul has joy because he tells us so in chapter 1. We didn't read it this morning. But in chapter 1, Paul tells us that there's four obstacles that he's experiencing to joy. Number one was his circumstances. He's in jail. He's in chains. But he, has, he tells us he has joy because his chains are furthering the gospel. The second thing Paul says is that he faces rivals and troublemakers. But he has joy because Christ and his redemption is still preached. Number three, he tell, Paul tell, tells us that he faces uncertainty about his future. Remember, he has a death sentence. So he's not sure whether he's going to get life or death, but he has joy because both life and death are great gain in Christ Jesus. And then fourth, Paul tells us about the obstacle of fear in the face of persecution. But he has joy because he's, that same persecution is a sign a sign of destruction for the wicked, and a sign of hope for the believer. So everybody has obstacles to joy. And, and so quite simply, Paul had joy because of faith in the promise of Christ. And the promise to all of us is this, that no matter where you are in the circumstances or season of your life, if you're a child of God, then God is making your life count for the kingdom of God and the sake of the gospel and eternal things. Because he will never leave you or forsake you. And he didn't save you for misery. He saved you for joy. And his promise to us is not that we'll experience good things after the bad things. You know, sometimes we think that if things are hard, that at least there's light at the end of the tunnel. But, you know, things could always be worse. His promise isn't things that would be better. His promise is that even in hard times, our lives are counting for the growth of the kingdom and the glory of the name of Christ because he is maturing our love for him and for others. He, he's causing us in the midst of struggle to be a source of comfort to others who also struggle. Now, that's pretty good, isn't it? So in the context of this encouragement from Paul to the Philippians, he says, go ahead, make my day, take this joy that I'm sharing with you in the gospel and make it complete, perfect my joy. And, and how are they to do that? 
Well, the first thing he tells them is that by being unified together. Adversity either brings you together or it drives you apart. You know, when uh, families experience hard times, sometimes we see couples pushed apart and they never make it again. And other times we see them pulled together. And Paul is telling us to be pulled together. And the Philippians, the Philippians are experiencing adversity. That's why Paul is sharing his joy with them. This is called the the uh, letter of joy, because he's experiencing the same pain. Now, he wants the Philippians to share their joy with him by being unified. And in this passage, he mentions four aspects of unity, four pillars for staying together. First, he says, be like-minded. Now, this is an attitude of agreement. It doesn't mean you'll always agree. It's your attitude, so that even when you do disagree, your attitude is unified. Now, we can all agree, I think, that this has been a pretty tough couple of years with COVID and a nasty presidential election, and now we've got inflation uh, running over the, over the dam. People on Facebook and Twitter and Fox News and CNN who might normally agree are condemning each other. It's amazing to me how people on the political left and the right believe that particular policy positions make you either moral or immoral. And to me, that's just so silly. It's foolish and self-righteous to think that you're on the side of angels. I love that passage at Jericho when Joshua meets the commander of the Lord's army, which is the Lord Jesus incarnate, and he says, are you for us or against us? And the Lord says, I'm now here. He's not taking sides. We're not on the side of angels. Government policy is simply the plan of action towards a goal. Nobody wants the poor or oppressed or left without health care. The debate is always about how to best care for the poor. So brothers and sisters, we can be like-minded about the goal without agreeing on the policy, and we can love each other when, even when we disagree. And in the church, you see this all the time. Churches and friendships are torn apart by decisions made about worships, music, and programs, and buildings, and budgets. Here's what Paul says in Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, then think about these things. You see, being like-minded is a matter of considering what a great foundation we have together in Christ and then living in a, an attitude of agreement, honoring one another's opinions and differences. Secondly, Paul says, have the same love. Now, what he means is that in the church, we don't show preference for one person over another because of class or gender or position. The means of our unity is having a common shared love of one another in Christ. We're all loved by Christ, and so we have this common love for one another. Now, marriage is a terrible example of this. My, my love for my wife, Sherry, in, in our 41st year, my, my love for Sherry is not the same love that I would have for you in the church. I, I hope you can rejoice in that. But, but among my brothers and, and sisters, I'm to love you each the same. 
as one another, and you're to love me the same. That's what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Share with God's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but some people are more lovable than others. Have you noticed that? So, some people are just easy to be around. That They make you feel comfortable and warm and welcome. So choosing their company over others is not love. It's just a simple preference, right? Love is a mutual commitment to do good to each other, especially those who are hard to love, those who are in need. Jesus tells us to invite people over for dinner who can't invite us back. Well, that's love. And, and we are a community of such love. And I hate to tell you this, but social media can't provide that for you. It may be able to enhance your opportunities to communicate. And I've gotten more done in the last two years because of Zoom than I ever thought possible. But Zoom will not increase your love. It might increase your efficiency, but will not increase your love. It may actually weaken it as a substitute for community. Thirdly, Paul says... Being one in spirit or of one accord. Beloved, we're united in Christ. Paul is telling us to live like it. In this case, marriage is a good example. In marriage, God takes two people who are often very different and he makes them one. And the implications of that are obvious. Right away in marriage, you realize that the most important good is what's good for both of you together. Not what's good for one person at, uh, at the expense of the other partner, but what's good for both of you. So together in the church, we form the body of Christ. We're each different, often very different. Different gifts, different calling, different maturity levels, but together we're one body. So Paul says in Romans 12, just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Now, I know it's not true in this church, but there's a growing movement in the Church of America. There's two movements going on. One is the de-church movement, where people are giving up on church altogether and just watching on Facebook or YouTube. Um, there's also a growing movement in the church not to have membership, that that's too formal and, and asks too much of people. It's, it's considered old school, and it limits my freedom on Sunday where I'll worship, and it, and it doesn't appeal to young people, to the millennials. But you see, church membership is an oath. It's a vow of commitment to two key things, to love God with a full heart and to love my neighbor as myself. So you see, when you join the church, membership is a commitment to treat each other like family. Well, maybe not like your own family, but like you wish it would be in your family. Because we, we belong to each other. And so I, I make a vow to promote you ahead of me and to be held accountable to that love. It's, it's serious business but it's very good, and it's the pathway to joy. So fourthly, Paul says we are one in purpose. Again, we go back to the family. One of the biggest failures I observe in parenting is that mom and dad are often not united in the purpose of their parenting, especially in the area of discipline, and this will cause arguments in the household. 
And children are bound to selfishly divide their parents whenever possible. I, I, I know you're aware of this, that they're little dividers. So in our house, we did two things to combat that. Number one, we always backed each other up, even if we thought the other was wrong, or we mostly did that. And, and, and we usually disciplined for division. So it went like this. In other words, if mom says no, you better not ask dad, right? And if dad says no, you better ask, not ask mom. But Palsy is not, is not talking about the family. He's talking about the church. And in the church, beloved, our purpose is to bring glory to Christ and unity to the body by shared love. How we treat each other is grounded in that, that reality. Christ is dishonored by division and honored by mutual sacrificial love. We even read that great passage of reconciliation from 2 Corinthians this morning in our, in our worship where we're called to be united together and reconciled. You know, the devil laughs when the people of God can't get along together because he doesn't have to do anything to prevent you from sharing the gospel because you're already not sharing the gospel when you fight together. Knowing Christ deeply only happens in the context of serving one another in the church. So if our goal is to know Christ, then we're stuck with each other. And that's a good thing. Secondly, out of the, uh, the second point I wanted to show you is joyful humility. If unity is what would bring joy, then humility is the road to, to unity. Look again at verse 3 in our passage of Philippians 2. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, we can jump right back here to politics, but that's just easy to trash politics, so I'll save us the trouble. Think about it like this. For the unbeliever, the one who's not committed to Christ, there is a clear and definite order of love. It goes like this. The unbeliever loves himself first, others second, God last. Self first, others second, God last. And for the unbelievers, there's definite merit in that order. I, I remember a lady I worked with over 30 years ago when I was an engineer before I was a pastor. And one day we were talking about the gospel and children and sin. And I generally use toddlers as a proof of original sin because it's, you don't have to argue, it's so easy to see that toddlers are selfish and self-willed, right? Uh, you know, adults pretend not to be that, but you can see it very easily in a two-year-old. And, and yet, this lady not only excused the behavior of toddlers, hers in particular, but she went on to make the point that God would never judge or punish sinners because he's too big for it to matter. And therefore, his holiness is irrelevant. Justice is non-existent. And I don't know if she realized she was arguing for it, but if there's no justice, then life has no meaning. And so I hope you see very clearly that there was a definite order to her love. Self, others, God last. It's the root of the sin that we inherit from Adam. In Ezekiel 28, the, the, the prophet, why don't you turn there if you've got a Bible, Ezekiel 28. 
I'll show you this. Now, this is a passage that's often talked about as maybe being Satan, but actually it's a type of Adam here that the prophet is making reference to. Ezekiel 28, look at verse 13. We're not going to read the whole thing, it's too long. Verse 13 says, You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and carbuncle, and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. Now look at verse 17. Your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I exposed you before kings to feast their eyes on you. So he's talking actually to the king of Tyre at, at, this, at this moment, at the prince of Tyre. But it, he's using him as a type of Adam. It's a prophetic speech referencing the fact that Tyre was the greatest king in the world at this point in terms of prosperity and, and, uh, and so he compares him to the greatness of Adam. And what happened to Adam and his greatness is that he fell because of pride. Adam was to lead the creation in worship. Imagine that. He's the worship leader of all creation. He's the gardener of God. He's the anointed priest of the creation. It was his job to take care of God's trade, to pass God's commands to the troops, and to bring the worship of the creation to the throne. He was the highest of God's creation, and yet it wasn't enough for him. He wanted the throne for himself. His wisdom and beauty were matchless in the creation, but it simply wasn't enough. He wanted to be like God. He wanted the worship for himself. In his pride, he sought to remove God from the throne and put himself in God's place. I think we often think of Adam as a simple man. He's a king. He's the priest of God. He's the ruler of the whole world at the point of his fall. And so the, this, this pride brought instant judgment, and Adam became the enemy of God instead of God's priest king. And when Adam and Eve decided to follow the serpent instead of God, they were overwhelmed with pride and the the. the the, the lust of pride, and it has come to all of us as well, beloved. The root of all sin is pride. You see, pride looks at my beauty and compares it to your ugliness. Pride looks at my intelligence and compares it to your stupidity. Pride looks at my ability and compares it to your incompetence. Pride looks at my discipline and compares it to your sloth. Pride looks at my accomplishments and compares it to your failures. Pride looks at my righteousness and compares it to your unrighteousness. Pride looks at my worthiness and compares it to your unworthiness. Pride looks at my wisdom and compares it to your foolishness, my opinions to your idiocy. Pride looks at my children's success and compares it to your children's failures. Pride looks at my blessings and compares it to your hardships. And pride is so perverted that pride will even look at my own hardships and considers that they're worse than yours. And so therefore, I'm more compassionate and you're more apathetic toward other people. That's what pride does. 
It always elevates self. Pride and the desire to be God is so central to the kingdom of darkness that in the wilderness, Satan tempted Jesus with one thing that Satan wanted most dearly, and that's world dominance and the worship of God's people, and he assumed that Jesus would take the bait. But you see, beloved, the roadmap of exaltation in the kingdom of God is humility. So Jesus took a pass. The way of the cross stood before him, not the way of world dominance. That's why the apostle Peter says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And he's quoting the book of Proverbs when he says it. He says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Now do you know what the key, maybe some of you are in the advertising business, do you know what the key to advertising is? To successful advertising? Self-interest. Do you know why government giveaway programs attract more people than what's in the budget and they overspend the budget? The answer is self-interest. The, the flesh puts self first, others second, God last. Now we fix that in the church because we're religious folks and we're committed to Christ. So we change that order a little bit. God first, me second, others last. You see, that's what the flesh does. This is why there's so many arguments in the church. Uh, oh, oh, the order often is God, me, others. The good news of the gospel, however, is that God has redeemed us from this kind of narcissism and self-worship and slavery to self, but it comes slowly through sanctification. You don't get that reordering overnight. But here's what's interesting. In Christ, our slavery to self-promotion and self-rule is slain like a dragon by Jesus. But our self-interest never dies. We are created in the image of God to be self-interested, but it has to be redeemed. In Christ, that self-interest realizes that I'm at my best and the most fulfilled with the greatest happiness and the most pleasure when my truest pursuit is the pleasures of God. In other words, God doesn't tell us to obey simply because it's right. He tells us to obey because it's good and it's good for us. It's in my best interest. Look again at verse 4. He says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see that? The gospel doesn't tell me not to look after my own interests. No, the gospel assumes that I'm self-interested even in Christ. My self-interest is never denied. It's redeemed. What, what's elevated in the gospel is the interests of others so that I realize it's in my self-interest to put God first, others second, and myself last. Do you see that? The gospel reorders all this. God first, others second, me last. And that takes me to the third thing I wanted to show you this morning, and that's joyful power. We've looked at joyful unity, joyful humility, now joyful power. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm still struggling with selfishness. I like 
me first. Amen? You like that? I do. I especially like the religious world in the church where I can claim God to be first and yet actually keep me first, make him second, and you last. I like that. And yet I hate it because it's so ugly. And I see it in myself. When you've seen the beauty of the kingdom, when you've seen the splendor of the cross, when you've grasped the majesty of Christ's righteousness, then pride always looks hideous. And yet I know that no matter how hard I try, I do not possess the power within myself to become a selfless person. I'm just not that humble, never have been. But there is a way, beloved, there is a way, and it's in verse 1. Look at it again. He says, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. That's the foundation of the gospel right there. The power to be humble and to put others ahead of you comes from the Spirit of God, no other place. Whenever Satan whispers in my ear that I should seek myself and ignore others, Whenever my flesh cries out and says, Jim, Jim, you're right. Seek yourself first. Whenever the world tugs at my soul and says, be warm, be filled, seek your comfort ahead of the needs of others. Whenever that happens, the gospel screams out at me that there is something better because the Spirit will never let us forget. He's so gracious in that. He will not let you seek yourself first and be happy. That's, that's the amazing thing. And that's the foundation to love inside of marriage, is that you can't be happy if you seek yourself first. And every struggling couple is experiencing that. He reveals our sin because he's gracious. He reveals our selfishness because he loves us and then continually points us to Christ. We have been united with Christ in his death and resurrection. When Christ died, I died. When Christ rose, I rose. And do you know what that means? It means that sin no longer calls me slave and I no longer call sin and selfishness my master. I'm dead to the old ways and no longer have to live in them. I am alive in Christ Jesus and his pleasures are becoming my pleasures. I no longer have to live according to my pride. And when I do, I have the power to repent. My sin has been laid on him and his righteousness given to me. It's so good. The world says, look at what your friends are becoming. Love them for their potential. You know, they're beautiful on the inside if you'll really look. I remember a couple in our church who was struggling 20 years ago in their marriage, and they went to a counselor, and the counselor says, you need to see the potential in each other. Well, the gospel will have none of that. God loves us because we're ugly. God loves us when we're ugly. He sent his son to die while we were still sinners. He loves even his enemies. His love is not about our potential, but about his character. He gives us faith not because of what we might become, but because we're ugly without it. And so our love in the body is the same way. We love each other ugly, beloved. That's the way love is. Because that's the way God loves us, not to change us or to get something from us, but because he's love and he overflows to share himself with us. 
and his glory. And that even affects how we pray for each other. I've noticed that people, when they're arguing, often pray for the other person to change. <laughs> Instead of praying for others to change and to be easier to love, I pray for my love to deepen for me to change. That's a gospel. What a difference that makes as the Spirit answers those prayers. And he will. And sometimes it'll hurt as he slays our pride and kills the dragon. And then Paul reminds us of our deep fellowship with the Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit, beloved, who is a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance in the kingdom. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. There is no one like our God, no God like the Ancient of Days, like our Father who makes us his children. It's amazing. But there is bad news. you got to hear it. The bad news is, is that in spite of the fact that you've been united with Christ, you can still choose to live as a slave according to the flesh. You can still put self first if that's what you want. You can participate in the church as a religious person in such a way that your words are right and your heart is wrong. Pharisees were always like that. You, you can use the Bible to justify your positions, your pride, your principles, and your unbelief and sound righteous while you do it. Parents do this every day with their kids. But you won't grow. You won't experience real love for one another, nor will you have lasting joy. And you'll just be another religious icon in the, in the community, transforming nothing and no one. And the greater danger is that you may really be lost and simply don't know it. But there is good news, beloved. It's an incredible good news. Jesus says, behold, I make all things new. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, especially the sin of pride, arrogance, and me first. And he rose from the dead to break that pride, to give us new life and real power that seeks the interests of others and glories in the pleasures of God by imitating our servant, King Jesus, and he gives us joy. So I invite you today to trust in him. Maybe some of you for the first time, all of you, to renew your trust in this joy of Christ. Re repent of your selfish interest and look to your real self-interest by renewing your faith in Christ so that your life is God, others, then me. You know, over 30 years of church leadership, I've had so many people, so many folks in my office or home who are struggling greatly, some with anger, some with their marriage, some with their kids, some with their joy, others with assurance and emotional security, some with addictions or deep sin habits, some even health issues. And each time when I listen, I always ask, to tell their, ask them to tell me their story, and I listen with keen ears for unbelief, because you see there always is. Not unbelief about whether Jesus is real or not. They all believe in Jesus. But, a, but a, their unbelief is about the power of the gospel to actually make us new and give us joy and to follow through in putting others first. The angry man can't see past his frustration with others. 
The woman in the troubled marriage can't see beyond her fear or unhappiness with her husband. The addict sees no other way to deal with life other than self-medication. It's always something. And so I listen for that unbelief and then I bring out the ointment, the anti-unbelief cream of the gospel. It's right here in verse 1. We are united with Christ. No one can change that in your life no matter what happens. No one can make it better by offering you temptations to stray from the path and you can't make it more true through heroic obedience. We have already been given everything we need for life and godliness. God loves you as much today as he will ever love you. And nobody needs the gospel today more than I do. Jesus loves you with an unfathomable love. No one can take it from you. It's yours, beloved. It's yours, child of God. It's yours. He is love. You are his friend, and our fellowship with God cannot be broken by your failure or by anybody else. Like the father in the prodigal story, in the story of the prodigal son, he's always there welcoming you back, and his mercies are new every morning. He is not angry with you. These are the true and noble things that Paul says that we're to meditate on in this passage. Just one simple verse. So rejoice, beloved, and make my joy complete. Hold on to Christ, and not only will you be able to think less of yourself, but you'll also think about yourself less. And that's the goal. Then we will have joy together that this world has rarely seen. And that, my friends, is the glorious grace of the gospel. Stand for prayer. Our Father, we need you as much today as we have ever needed you. So work your spirit in us and make us the kind of people who are like Christ, who don't hold on to our position but give it away gladly to promote others. So would you fill us with your spirit once again, a spirit of love for you, flows over into a love for each other? And would you give us the joy that Paul talks about here? Make our joy complete as the people of God by putting you first, others second, and me last. Would you do that for the glory of Christ and for his name's sake? And we pray that it would be so in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen.